Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Airport Wild Podcast. This is actually episode 22. I'm your host, Brett Jacobson, and on today's episode, we have Mike Matney, who is a professional trapper as well as a inventor of the uh, Colony Float Trap uh, for NongripTraps.com. Uh, he's going to join our show. He's going to. Ha- he's got a bunch of stories, a lot of really good insights. So sit back, relax. As always, if you like what you hear, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter, and we appreciate you listening. Thanks. Good afternoon, everybody. It is March 16th. This is episode 22 of the Airport Wild podcast. Um, My guest today is trapper extraordinaire, uh, Mike Matney. And uh, Mike Matney is the owner of Non-Grip Traps and FursAlaska.com. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Great. Now, Mike, where are you exactly right now? I know, obviously, uh, I think we talked, you're, <laughs> you're in California, but you also got something in Washington and then Alaska. So where in the world is Mike today? Well, I'm actually in California right now. Uh, I spend most of my time in Alaska where my home is. And then my wife likes the sunshine. I live on Southeast Alaska, which gets a lot of rain. And so part of us moving to Alaska was uh, my agreement to spending some time in the sun. So I'm doing my obligation right now. Yeah. So I actually, I actually just got to meet your wife uh, who, you know, uh, just got off the tennis court. Did you, uh, judging by your attire right now, I don't think you played tennis with her this morning, did you? No, I I was actually sitting and sewing slippers. I make fur (laughs) slippers, one of the items we make. And, and I was making inventory for the store when we go back home here shortly. Good, good. Okay, so obviously this is episode 22. Uh, This is your first time on our podcast, so I appreciate you taking time. And uh, I'm really excited to have you, uh, primarily because we haven't had we haven't had a guest like you. Um, And we're gonna we're gonna go through uh, a lot. So why don't we start with, um, you know, talk about like, your love for trapping when it started when you were a kid and kind of bring it, you know, for, full circle to where, you know, you started to say, okay, I can make some money doing this. Let's start a business. Okay. Well, I started trapping when I was about 10 years old and uh, that would be in about 68. And so I, at that time, uh, beaver was worth basically a month's wages. And as a kid, my mother or father would pack me around to trap beaver and drive me from place to place. And by the time I turned 16, I'd caught enough beaver that I bought a brand new Ford four-wheel drive pickup. Um, <laughs> How much did that go for back then? $4,600. Oh, brand new, huh? <laughs> brand new. Yeah, and that okay. was in uh, like 71. And that was all paid with trapping money? Yeah, it was all paid with, of course, my, well, you know, you got to consider my 
my parents didn't make me reimburse them for the gas that they were driving me around to catch the beaver. So okay, I had that okay. benefit. So yeah, but, so you, uh, you skirted that out of pocket. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, at that time, a day's wages was about $30 and the beaver was $30. And I remember opening day and, and I remember catching 19 beaver thinking I basically made the, as a 11 year old or whatever at that time made a month's wages of a working man in, in one day. So, so that's when, when it was possible to make some money with actual fur, you know, so, and. So, yeah, so back in those days, um, who were you selling your fur to? Where you, how were you making this money? We had an auction that we went to a local auction through the Washington State Trappers Association. I was a resident of Washington at that time. Okay. And, uh, you know, jumping a little bit farther ahead to our topic of the trap. And in the year 2000, the state of Washington uh, had been shifting more and more to ballot box biology. And so they basically voted trapping out. And so they left it as being able to trap animals provided you did not grip the animal. And so basically cage trapping was the only thing that was available to us. And that's what prompted me to start developing some way to catch muskrats. You know, mm -hmm. basically trying to cage trap an individual muskrat would be a bit of a problem. And then so over time, I developed a couple different models. Uh, the inverted door one, which was kind of interesting. Uh, basically, instead of the door coming down from a downward position, it basically just folds down. It's hinged from the bottom rather than hinged from the top. Yeah. And and quite by accident, through my uh, experiences of trapping, or basically uh, setting crab pots for crabs, there's a, basically a, a way to strain out the smaller ones. And I thought, well, gee, you know, as it turned out, when I built some of the first ones and had the video cameras on it, the muskrats were, the little ones were getting out. And I thought, well, that's not good. Well, wait a minute, maybe that's not all that bad as far as a fur trapper. And now I'm only catching large and extra large muskrats. And so that worked out really well for my own, my own ponds that I had on my place there to be able to only harvest the mature muskrats and leave the younger ones there too mature to become full size before they're harvested, you know. A little bit of a disclosure here. I'm a fur trapper, not an ADC guy. I've never been involved in the ADC world, uh, which actually is where the money is actually made. It sure as heck isn't fur prices now. So, so yeah, they've, I uh, they've, uh, they've plummeted pretty good, huh? Yeah, and they're staying that way. Of course, then, like, when did that happen? Not to cut you off. When did um, you know? When did when was the boom? for for trapping so like i i'm 36 years old right and i just started getting into trapping uh the last few years here and full disclosure i'm terrible at it um so <laughs> it's a lot harder than i expected so um you know it's not like catching mice in a barn or something like that so um when when was that boom when was that fur boom and then when did it just die off well it's it goes in cycles and you got to remember that the the ranch race fur makes up 95 percent of the fur market so basically as the furriers go boom and bust so does the the raw fur market because the raw fur market just follows the the ranch fur market 
And so, you know, we had a boom back in the early 70s. We had another one in the 80s. Uh, and it's, it's and you know, when you say a boom, it, it, it's still got a lot of downward pressure from the, the anti-bird groups and that. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I think those people sometime will flip over when they figure out that all the polyester and all the man-made fabrics we have now that are made out of petroleum, there's quite an, it's getting to be quite an issue with the microfibers that are washing into the oceans and, and that. They say there's 500,000 uh, tons of microfibers end up in the ocean yearly. And That's crazy. So, uh, so, you know, those people that are encouraging the use of microfibers are at some point going to figure out, wait a minute here, this maybe is not working out in our best interest. When now they test all the sea life in the sea and all of, almost everything has my, microfibers in it, basically plastic in, in all the aquatic life. So I can see those same people that are opposed to for figuring out that, wait a minute, first biodegradable, organic, and a renewable resource. Why are we opposed to this? <laughs> yeah, that make, I mean, that makes sense to me. I mean, especially with the shift in the culture of, you know, everybody, you know, biodegradable, organic. Uh, I mean, it makes sense to me. So, so yeah, getting back to, um, you know, your start and everything and, and this boom, when did you, when did you just, I don't know, when did you have to shift gears and kind of, re, you know, revisit your business plan of, you know, how you're going to make money? Well, I never have been using trapping as a livelihood. Okay. It's okay. more of a glorified hobby for me. And uh, I had an excavation business for 25 years. And part of that was uh, the fact that I had my winners off so I could trap. So basically as a sportsman, I spent uh, my time winter months, uh, the three months of time basically enjoying what I do, which is run around in the woods and, and that. So, and, you know, I, I basically trap all species. I actually, I have a place in, in uh, Montana where I go to in the high line where the best coyotes in the world, with the exception of maybe Alberta come from that area. And I go there every year and harvest, harvest coyotes anywhere from, I don't know, I think I only got about 30 this year, but normally we, my son would go with me and we'd, get somewhere around a hundred in about two to three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's one thing that I've noticed that's become really, really popular and very effective for population control is actually trapping coyotes. You know, it, it seems like everybody was kind of falling in love with the predator calls and trying to, you know, trying to, you know, maintain the population that way. But yeah, from all the research I've done, trapping is probably the most effective way to, uh, to really, um, you know, mitigate that, that number of coyotes that are, uh, that are kind of turning into a nuisance. Would you agree? Yeah. I watched uh, one of your podcasts there where you were talking about snaring and I, I realized that different States have different regulations in that, but we use in Montana, uh, or kill springs, which are just probably the most humane method of harvesting a coyote imaginable because, you know, it's not a hundred percent, but I'd say it's in the high eighties that the coyotes laying dead at the end of the snare, it cuts off the carotid artery and then that spring fires and takes out another two and a half inches of cable or mm -hmm. two inches of cable. And uh, it basically just drops the coyote at the end when it cuts off that carotid artery to the brain, it just kills them instantly. Probably the most humane method of actually harvesting 
coyotes. That's like, you know, it's kind of funny that the state of Washington that uh, decided <laughs> that it wasn't humane to, to use a conibear, which was the most humane trap ever developed, and uh, went to using box traps in the pretense of being more humane and yeah. just a lack of knowledge of what they were voting on. But once yeah. again, you're using ballot box biology, you, you just don't get the same time, kind of results as you do with scientific biology. Yeah, you got to love it when, um, you know, lawmakers who have no idea and have never done it before whatsoever, you know, making, uh, making laws and passing legislation you know, uh, kind of blindly. Um, but hey, that's the world we live in, huh? That's a whole nother podcast episode. I'm yeah. sure we didn't get into <laughs> um, So yeah, you've trapped all over, right? What are some of the states that you've trapped at? And what are kind of some of the, some of the species that are, you know, that, um, that you've trapped that you, you know, kind of made a name for yourself? Okay, uh, probably the, my love has been coyotes for one thing and pine marten. Uh, pine martin and a coyote are usually worth very similar in price, about the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, in the year 2000, when they banned trapping as I knew it, I went to box trapping. Uh, my son came to me and he said, Dad, I want to catch as many popcats as I can so I can buy a pickup. Because he'd heard me <laughs> buying a pickup with a... With a yeah, father like son, father like son, yeah. yeah. So I said, okay, I'll help you. You know, of course, I was paying for the gas and the snowmobile <laughs> gas and that. And in, so it finally caught up to you, huh? <laughs> yeah, so in two months, he caught uh, 78 bobcats. He actually caught 80, but he had one stolen and one the hound hunter turned it loose and ran it. <laughs> so, but he, <laughs> he had got 79 bobcats and he went out and bought a Toyota Tundra pickup. So that's awesome. Now, when you're, you know, you trapped all, you, you mentioned Washington, right? Um, yeah. Aside from muskrats, because, um, you know, I know like, um, like the otter population is pretty prominent up there. Um, what else have you trapped in the state of Washington? I've trapped all species in Washington. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, the central Washington has a fairly good population of muskrats. Um, they, that Moses Lake area, they normally took about 10,000 muskrats out of there annually up until the time that they, the uh, um, ban on trapping went in. And then over about a three year period, the, the muskrats got tularemia and the entire population died off. It was kept healthy with trapping for years and years and years. And when it became no management, that, that old saying, when does no management become bad management, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, so in central Washington, I trapped muskrats, and then I trapped locally. I lived north of Spokane, about 80 miles. And I, uh, I had a lot of coyotes, a lot of bobcats, pine marten, you know, the main species, and then a fair number of beaver too. And so that's what, where I trapped in Washington. But when they banned uh, trapping in Washington as, as we knew it, uh, I moved, uh, started going to Alaska looking for a place, and I ended up uh, in Wrangell, Alaska, southeast. Okay. Had a good population of uh, marten, otter, and beaver. Okay. And so no coyotes. We do have wolves. I usually catch a wolf or two in the year. I didn't catch any this year. I caught two wolverine this year, though. Oh, wow. So, well, <laughs> so. Nice. Um, so real quick. So, all right. You know, we have a lot of obviously experience with, you know, muskrats, beavers and otters. What are some of, you know, what are some of the damage, 
you know, um, you know, spe specifically, I mean, when we're talking, you know, obviously, um, our, a lot of our listeners, you know, we, you know, come from either trapping on airports, trapping on golf courses, trapping on uh, fish or trapping in fish hatcheries, right? What are some of the damages that, you know, the beavers and otters and muskrats cause for, uh, for, for some of the, the landscape that way? Well, you guys know more of the animal damage control guys know more about that than I do. I'm, I'm usually trapping on forest service ground where it's really not an issue of that. So, yeah. so but, you but know, one of the traps I developed was specifically for the animal damage control guys, you know, rather than spending your time looking for runs and looking for feed beds and all this, the, the treadle design trap, uh, it's not a hundred percent catch because if anything smaller than about a hamster will not operate the teeter totter mechanism that closes the door. And then it's a, uh, they're a repeating catch trap, you know, you wire it off to a bunch of toolies because the animals that are in the trap are not uh, like in a foothold trap. They're able to paw around and cut weeds down and things like that. So you got to be anchoring them fairly solid with these floating colony traps. It's not necessary to anchor them all that well because they're, there's no way for them to do anything. Once they get in it and they, they can't get back out of it, eventually they discover the only way they can get anywhere is to go down through two opposing fingers where the animal right. died, grounds at that point. And then at the same time, it resets the door at the same time. And, and most I've ever caught is eight, although I've had a lot of people that I've sold traps to that laid claim to 10. I had one guy that was a golf course, course uh, or he was a ADC guy that was working a golf course and said there wasn't any toolies or anything around the golf course pond, but the muskrats were apparently eating grass and still digging holes and the, you know, the golf uh, mowers were, or the oh, yeah. mowers were dropping into the, dropping into in the holes. bins and that. And he, he bought one of my traps and he said, I'm not catching anything in your trap. And I said, well, you know, maybe they just don't know what a carrot is, you know, and that. So I told him to seed the bank with, with, uh, Carrots. I said, just take and go around the bank and throw a few carrots down. See if they see if they're going to grab the carrots. Well, he called me back the next day and he said, "Yeah, it worked." And I couldn't get another one in the trap without Vaseline. He said there was ten of them in it. <laughs> so, so it's always neat to hear those stories about yeah. traps and that. So okay, so non-grip traps, right? That's the name of your company, and you know. Um, you know, obviously I probably didn't do a good job introducing that into the conversation, but so for our listeners who obviously they can't see what we can see here, right? Um, you know, pulled up on your website, which is nongriptraps.com, right? Yes. Yep. So just describe, so because I had ne until, uh, uh, so you were actually a guest on the Meat Eaters podcast, and that's actually yep. how I got turned on to you, uh, which... <laughs> you know, not to promote somebody else's podcast, but it's meat eaters. Let's be honest. Right. So, um, you know, my son, my son is personal friends with Steve and he just asked me to, Hey, stop by when you're going up to go coyote trap and, uh, stop mm -hmm. by for a minute. And I stopped by it and he said, Hey, come here and sit down for a minute. <laughs> That's yeah. why Okay. Well, now that you can introduce me to, yeah now that you can introduce me to Steve we're best friends um anyways so yeah so you're on the meat eaters podcast and I listened to that and I was like man I got I have no idea what they're talking about I have to pull this up so this non-grip floating colony trap right so just kind of describe it you know and and then talk about some of the revisions that you made along the way because I'm sure it was there's some trial and error 
when you were uh, when you were building it and applying it? I extensively used trail cameras to watch what was going on. Okay, it was, it was a lot of fun actually making it. I actually developed it in just basically one uh, one spring trapping season. I was just fiddling <laughs> around with it and. Uh, kept trying different things and you could see when they were refusing it and when they were getting out of it, when it wasn't working and, and mm -hmm. things like that. And so over time, and then, uh, you know, basically I had the inverted door and the treadle. I was operating in two different principles at the same time. And as it turns out, the, the treadle design works very well for the, the ADC guys, and one of the glorious things about it is the fact that you can just bait it and throw it in the pond and walk away from it. You know, you're not having to locate, you know, the individual set locations in that. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they, they seem to really like about it. So yeah. the way the trap works is, uh, in the case of the treadle, being your audience is mostly animal damage control people, uh, the way it works is that the door is hip, it, uh, hinges from the bottom side of the entrance. And as the animal goes into it, there's a teeter-totter that once they enter it so far, the teeter-totter pushes the door shut behind them. So once they're in the trap, there's no way they can get back out because even if they get in and the door drops back down, they turn around, they put their feet back on the teeter-totter and it closes the door before they can get to it. Hmm. So after a while, they figure out, okay, here's, I, I'm a, basically a, muskrat and you know he gets in trouble he goes into the water that's his safety so eventually he figures out he can go down through these opposing fingers and uh, the two opposing fingers are weighted so that uh, once he goes through them then they reset now he can no longer get back up to where there's air and he he drowns at that point and uh, it's ready for the next next muskrat there's in the area done underneath is uh Let's see, it'd be six inches by, by 24. <laughs> Sorry, we'll edit that out. <laughs> Maybe we won't, I don't know. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, was, that a, was that an order from this podcast? You're already, or, people are already no, buying actually, that was, that was actually one of my trapping friends uh, calling me right there. So but anyway, uh, the animal enters, he, he drowns and the trap is ready for the next animal. The uh, advantage of the treadle design over the inverted door is the inverted door, the muskrats go in and they really don't know that they're caught as the wires, as the door comes back up and once they've entered it, uh, they continue to eat carrots until they get their fill. The advantage of the, the treadle design is, is once they go in that door closes behind them, then they get nervous and they forget about eating and then they start looking for a way out. So your bait lasts significantly longer. Yeah. Design. I mean, carrots are really, really expensive, but yeah, you're. <laughs> um, so obviously with the new legislation in Washington, uh, I think you said in uh, the early 2000s, that's what prompted you to do this. How fast did it take you from a business standpoint to start selling this? Uh, Actually, I went down and tested them out for a little bit. Uh, my son went with me and we went down and said, okay, I, you know, I built 80 traps. And I said, okay, let's head to Moses Lake, which I had trapped with footholds and conor bears in years prior. And so we went down there and uh, started setting these things out, you know, and you get to where, you know, every trap you come to has got muskrats in it and multiple muskrats. And, you know, at, 
at one time I probably was running oh, 160 footholds or conifers, you know, double the number of traps. But what I found was is that that uh, just was so much more efficient for the time spent, even though the traps are big and bulky, uh, I had a, a John boat with a mud buddy on the back of it traveling around. You could stack 20 some traps on it, come back and get another load and take them out. But you have, you're not looking for runs. You're not looking for feed beds. You're not looking for anything. You know, you're just, you know, just spreading them out basically in areas. You know, anytime you got a bottleneck or you've got, you know, places where you got, uh, more uh, funneled area for the muskrats to be traveling sure. and you're just wiring them off baiting them and drop them and go to the next one so it's a lot more efficient setting the traps and you know i wasn't running near as many traps and i absolutely doubled my production uh went from 60 muskrats a day with footholds and conibears to 120 muskrats a day with these floating colonies with basically half the traps so that's crazy. I just, uh, you know, that that's an awesome story to hear about, you know, kind caught, of the, yeah, the development of it. That's awesome. We caught, I think it was right at 900 muskrats in about 10 days. Okay. So you got 900 muskrats and you're like, let's sell these. What happened next? Well, we actually shipped them off to uh, uh, NAFA is where we ended up sending them North American back before they went out of business. But, uh, we sold those and uh, we actually averaged almost $11 on them. It was one of the periods of time when the muskrats were up pretty good. And that was what was kind of prompting me to, to get this thing developed. So, yeah. Because the food prices were coming up a little bit. Yeah. So as far as the traps, um, how many do you make a year? How many do you sell a year? Oh, uh, I... I just started making another 200 of them. Uh, I try to make them in groups because I've got jigs for making them now and various other things. So I can, you know, when I drill a bunch of the sheet metal in that, I can, mm-hmm. you know, I can mul- do multiple sheets and rather than one at a time type of thing. So I try to do groups of 200. Uh, you know, I don't, it might, the 200 I'm making right now may last uh two years maybe i might might sell 100 in a year but mm-hmm. usually I, in the past it hasn't been quite that many so but i'm with this podcast and actually what happened was is i after that podcast i sold out of all the ones i had so yeah you know. well hopefully we can uh yeah i expect a commission check now i'm just kidding uh, okay. <laughs> now um in the mail. yeah yeah it's in the mail it's in the mail <laughs> a lot along with my, uh, my energy bill. Um, so what's the lifespan of these, tra- uh, of the colony traps? Um, how long do they last? What's the durability? I know obviously you can't use them. So obviously up here in the Northeast where I am in upstate New York, you know, we have to deal with ice. These yeah. are strictly just floating traps, right? Yes, and it will not operate in any amount of ice. Yeah. Any ice at all, it's non-functional. Okay. What's the lifespan of these traps? I would think it would be very, you know, I know there's some guys back east that are over on the coast that are using them in salt water, and I suspect that they're probably going to be short-lived at that point. I just know where I'm at in Wrangell, Alaska, how that salt water is destructive. To, to, even though they're made out of galvanized and that, I, I still think it's, uh, the ones that I've got are probably 15 years old, and oh, wow. uh, 
so you know and i do paint them occasionally in that give them another cone of paint but that as much of that as it if anything is just camouflage from other people more than it is anything else i don't think the sheet metal itself that the top of it is made out of i don't think the muskrats care about that one way or another quite frankly yeah have you had anybody steal your traps while they're out yeah yeah is that a popular thing you know, it's not nearly as bad as uh, all the horror stories I hear about back east. You know, where I trap now, I'm 42 miles from any other human being. So it's not a non-existent problem up there now. Yeah, but, it's uh, definitely a, you know, there's definitely something to say about, you know, around here, you know, like out, out here, I would say if you drew a line from like Ohio and went east, um, the amount of obviously the the density and you know the amount of uh, of hunters you know per square mile trappers fisher fishermen and stuff like that that is definitely that is definitely a, a cause for concern is the amount of tree stands trail cameras you know trapping equipment even you know trapped animals that get just taken um you know uh it, it's definitely i don't know it's the I guess the, the moral compass is a little messed up. <laughs> yeah, terribly messed up, yeah. It just, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it just really is frustrating to me that someone would do that. It just doesn't, you know, I would never do that to anybody else, and I right. expect the same, and yet there are people out there that don't have that belief. That it's in the woods, it's free, you know. Uh, kind of a... Yeah, yeah, every year a group of buddies of mine and and my father we go on a we go on a deer hunting trip out in uh, southern Indiana, and um, you know I've hunted uh, I've hunted deer in Turkey and New York, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Ohio, and, and Indiana, and um, <laughs> one of the biggest differences, and that's why I say I draw that line in Ohio. <laughs> And I've had so many trail cameras and tree stands stolen, you know, and in all those states, especially here in New York. But in Indiana, I've had people walk by the trail cameras and wave, smile, you know, like give me a thumbs up, right? You know, I've had people, you know, literally see my car parked or truck parked and they'll go two miles down the road just in, and then drive by and apologize for parking <laughs> or for pulling by and stuff. And it, you don't even know they're there. So um, it's definitely, yeah, there's definitely a huge difference when you start heading out West to uh, kind of the old way of respecting each other and respecting the woods. So, um, but anyways, so, all right. So we got the, we got non-grip traps, right? I know you own like 11 businesses. So for, so let's talk about, let's shift gears here, right? So we're catching all these things. FursAlaska.com is another one of your businesses. Let's talk about that. Give us a brief description and go into detail on how you, how you started this one. Well, partly because of the fact that fur market has been progressively going downhill. Uh, it allowed me to take and just value added to my furs that I catch, which, you know, granted, if fur was worth nothing, I'd still be trapping. Uh, sure. So, so that allows me to, you know, I started off by making stuff for my kids and things like that. But then over time, I got people asking me to make things and then it just kind of kept mushrooming and then ended up uh, developing uh, Wrangell Extended Stay, which we had a, a area for a store and I decided to put in a 
a first store in, in there. I've always wanted to sort, you know, actually buy some fur machines and actually spend some time uh, sewing. And Rango gets about 80 inches of rain. So on rainy days, I just choose to go in and sew and make product for the store and, and that. And so it's worked out fairly well, other than the fact that COVID hit. And now we no longer have any tourism and probably won't have for this year either, it looks probably like. But, so probably, uh, you know, so that's what prompted me to get the website, uh, com up and running. And that I've always fought off having a website because of the fact I really want a hobby. I don't really want a job. So, no. <laughs> that's the American dream, right? <laughs> Find a hobby and make a living off of it and you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. So now what are some, uh, talk about some of the things that you make and that you sell uh, on oh. Furs Alaska. No, one of the real big sellers is the beer koozies, uh, which we also make them for wine bottles. We make them for, you know, bottle koozies and that too, which are mainly made out of beaver and otter is what I make those out of. Uh, another good seller is slippers, but we make all kinds of things, make a lot of fur hats, uh, the trapper type hats, the main hats I make, as well as we make uh, oh, some ladies types hats as well too. Make scarves, neck muffs, uh, make snap bracelets. Make uh, these little things with kids' toys we call Furbies. Uh, <laughs> well, just whatever I can figure out to make out of the out of the fur. So. Okay. Now, um, now, do you do a lot of like? Do you sell a lot to like overseas? I know, obviously, the you know the American, I guess, fashion sense uh, when it comes to wearing furs is a little different than the international. Uh, do you do much international stuff? I know. Not at all. Not at, not at all. all. No, I know I heard, uh, I think it was on that Mediators podcast, something about uh, either bobcat fur on, you know, the lining of the pockets or something like that. Is is that still a thing? You know, that's, I'm not familiar with that. It's my son who was talking about that. So, you know, they, they're using fur in a lot of different places now and that. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're using it and cutting the beaver in little tiny strips and, and weaving it or basically making a, I don't know if weaving is the right term. I guess that is the right term. Making a, a blanket more or less out of a little tiny strips of beaver in that. Mm -hmm. and that. Yeah. So there's all kinds of different things being done with fur now. Of course, you know, you realize that, the, you know, most uh, Stetsons are, are resist all cowboy hats or all beaver felt. Uh, there's only one uh, felting uh, uh, company in uh, the United States left that they used they make felt out of beaver and then they sell the felt then to different hat manufacturers for for making basically if you look at a stetson hat it'll say whether it's a one two or a three x beaver hat that's actually beaver felt is what it actually is nice so real quick let's get i want to get your thoughts on this so obviously you know you've been around for a while you've seen this industry you've seen it at its best you've seen it at its worst what do you think the future of trapping looks like, you know, from your, from your opinion? Well, as we go more and more to ballot box biology and getting away from actually managing wildlife, the ADC guys or business is just going to steadily expand, you know, so, you know, they, the, the animals need to be managed and they're going to end up being managed one way or another, whether it's done with a trapping license and regulations to manage the healthy population or 
you're going to hire a professional trapper in the ADC, which is yearly, all instead of just harvesting during the period of time when the furs are valuable, you're just more of a of reducing numbers to try to maintain a healthy population or get any down to where they're not a problem in some cases. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, I don't know. I mean, in the days of, so I guess because social media exists now, right. So you're seeing more people, you know, participate in, I know I'm in a bunch of groups, um, you know, that are dedicated to trapping. Um, which don't worry, this podcast will be on those. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you start to see it. In my opinion, it just, it, it looks like it's the popularity is starting to come back. They're starting to be like, I don't want to say a movement, but some momentum um, in that lifestyle because, you know, as an outdoorsman and, you know, even working in this industry, and I'm sure you can agree, you know, there's a lot of critics and there's a lot, of, there's a lot of haters out there when it comes to what we do. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people that feel that you're doing a disservice to the animal by maintaining a healthy population by your entering into their natural cycle. You know, most all animals have natural cycles. In the case of muskrats, at least in my experience in Washington, is about an eight-year cycle where they'll populate up and become overpopulated. All animals have a controlling disease. In the case of muskrats, it's tularemia. They die off from tularemia. Then it takes about five years for it to get out of the dens and have the population start to build again. So they travel in an an eight-year cycle. Many people feel that that's the best situation. Well, I think in the case of my thinking is, is aren't you better off to utilize the resource, maintain a healthy population right straight through and indefinitely, you know, so it's a different, different approach. Yes. Have you ever, uh, have you ever dealt with, um, you know, people uh, either protesting or, or maybe getting on your case for, for kind of the lifestyle that you've lived? Oh yeah. I, I get right. I get a lot of enjoyment out of it because I can pretty much uh, talk them into a corner that they can't get out of. So, uh, <laughs> well, we won't, you know, do, I won't, I won't play devil's advocate with you then. <laughs> so wait, time out. So, so you're a part-time trapper, part-time lawyer and litigator, huh? All right. Yeah. Well, you know, I get, uh, I get a lot of enjoyment talking to people. I like to understand how other people think and that to try to understand their, their process but if they have have any logic you know that's just like you know i think i you probably heard me talk about the case of the people that come into the store that feel that you know trapping is inhumane and i i think it's kind of interesting in that you know basically i say we've probably got some things we could agree upon we could probably agree that all wild animals die and you know you usually don't get much disagreement with that and i, I said well okay so we can probably also agree then that no wild animal dry dies of old age and you can sometimes get a little bit of flack about that and so you pull out your cell phone and you google it and say what percentage of wild animal wild animals die of old age and it's almost none you know or non-negligible Okay, so now we have the possibility, how is these animals going to die? Well, they could die of starvation. They could die of being consumed by another predator. They could die from a conibear trap. And basically that's uh, probably the three possibilities they're gonna die of. Okay, out of those three, 
would you prefer to die of a, a slow death of, of uh, starvation? Would you prefer to die of a slow death of disease or consumed by another predator or being killed instantly by a conibear or in or some type of a mechanical device? So, you know, I, to say that the, the trapping is inhumane is the most humane death that that animal's actually apt to receive is trapping. And second of all, let's talk about the animals that are still left. Now they don't have to compete with the one animal that was removed. Now their environment is better for them. So is it inhumane for, to improve the livelihood of the animals to, to return them to carrying capacity where they have an adequate amount of food and an adequate amount of uh, area to travel in and stuff like that. So is it inhumane to maintain a healthy population? Well, I, I, I guess if you feel that way, we need to go back to the natural cycle then. If you don't feel that, it, that you want to have a healthy population, then you must want to have the natural cycles going from peak and crash. Yeah, we run into a, we, you know, uh, first off, that phenomenal points, great points. I feel sorry for anybody that walks into your fur shop and uh, <laughs> <laughs> wants to have a debate with me. Yeah, and tries to pick a fight with the the legend Mike Matney. Um, <laughs> How often does that happen? Be real. How often does it not, happen? Not often. Not often. You know, a lot of times I can, I can explain to people that, you know, a, a trapper, fur trapper is just a farmer. We're just trying to maintain the highest number of animals carrying capacity to produce the highest number of offspring that's surplus that needs to be harvested to maintain that healthy population. So in the case of a farmer that has a, a, a pasture that supports 100 cattle on it, he's not going to want to run 20 cattle on it and produce 20 calves. He's going to want to run 100 cattle on it and produce 100 calves. And then he knows that he has to get those back off of there, the surplus off, in order to maintain a healthy environment for his brood stock. Yeah. Which are no different than that at all, other than that we don't have fences. <laughs> yeah, and when the population gets too out of control, Q COVID-19, right? <laughs> so, uh, which is a terrible joke, I'm sure. Um, but so, all right, good stuff. Um, let's, uh, let's wrap this up here. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions, right? What was the first thing you ever trapped and what's the hardest thing you ever trapped? And give me, give me one of your, your best stories of, uh, your best trapping stories. Well, beaver are probably the first things I was trapping, you know, probably. You don't remember the first thing you ever trapped? I mean, obviously. Yeah, beaver. Yeah, beaver. beaver. Yeah. And that was just because of what they were worth. And we yeah. had lots of beaver at that time, too. Uh, so as a kid, my mother would uh, drive me around and, and uh, the game department would refer me when the, somebody had a complaint beaver. And then at 11 mother, years old. <laughs> yeah. And so the, I'd, I'd come up with my mother and we'd get out of the car and we'd say, well, uh, we're here to trap your, take care of your beaver problem for you. And, and they'd look around and say, well, who's going to do that? <laughs> you know, as well, I am, you know, and my, it was kind of interesting that they just didn't expect 11 year old kid to, was suggested that that individual be the one to take care of their beaver problem for them. So, 
And so that was probably, she used to get, get a kick out of it, I guess. So. Oh, yeah. Drive me around. So, and probably the, I my love right now is catching Wolverine, and uh, not because they're particularly difficult to catch at the set, and uh, but the fact is they're just low in numbers, and it's just kind of a neat deal to catch a Wolverine. I I caught two of them this year, but what I've spent on trying to catch these Wolverine, I probably could have bought a hundred of them. But, <laughs> That's all right. You gotta be you gotta be pushed to the to the max. Give me a give me a give me a give me a good give me a good story and then give me a disaster story <laughs> where it just didn't work out. I don't know about the what's a disaster story. I've walked out of my on a snow out of my snowmobile trail a couple times, but uh, breaking down <laughs> snowmobiles and things like that. But uh, had an interesting experience this year. Uh, I went up and trapped in one stream. I had docked at a at Forest Service, had a dock in one spot there, and I docked up at that, and they had a Forest Service cabin there that they rent out during the summer months and that. Came back, I hiked up the creek and set some, uh, set some traps up in there, and I came back, and one of my batteries had gone to uh, ground in my boat, and so I had no, no boat, uh, no, no electricity in my boat, which meant I had no heater either. <laughs> and I had no way of starting my boat. I wasn't prepared enough to have uh, uh, some way of jumping it. Or a, I, I now have one of those little battery boost things. To there you go. Not yeah. a reoccurring, re reoccurring problem, but called a friend of mine with my satellite phone and said, yeah, I got a little bit of an issue. My boat's not startable and I don't have any way to start it. Uh, can you come down and give me a jump tomorrow? And it was just about, oh, hour before dark and I'm 40 miles from town and he I didn't have enough time to get down and then get back so I said you know I'll be fine it's not life-threatening I got the forest service cabin over here I can go get in that of course it has an oil heater in it and so there's no way to build a fire in there so I sat in the cabin it was probably you know, in the mid-20s I guess and so I'd sat there until my feet got too cold and then I'd walk up and down the stairs that were in there until I got warm, which <laughs> was about an hour cycle. So I did that for 12 hours. Uh, I'd nap or whatever for 45 minutes and then I'd hike up and down the stairs for 15 minutes to get back warm again. Yeah. So that was a long night. <laughs> Sorry, Bear Grylls would have been proud of you. So that's good. <laughs> um, Great. Well, look, I appreciate you being on. Um, tons and tons of good stuff. I was really excited to have you on. You didn't disappoint, which is awesome. So um, for our, our, our listeners out there, if, uh, if they wanted to get in contact with you, um, you give, us, uh, give us your contact information and uh, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, Non-grip traps, uh, some of the information is on there as far as phone numbers and stuff like that. Phone is by far the best method. Uh, my cell phone is 907-305-1117. And then uh, also the uh, FursAlaska.com, Wrangell Extended Stay is our, what I got a rental business up there and, and that. And so... I have a bunch of other, but three lakes fly fishing. I have three private lakes that I rent out, uh, which is kind of a neat deal. So you get the whole lake to yourself. It's a, a 33 acre lake is one of the horseshoe lake is uh, right. one of the lakes that I still use. I, when I moved to Alaska, I kind of dropped that business. My stepson kind of took it over in that. And 
one of the lakes we kind of phased out, uh, although it was the biggest lake. It was a 35-acre lake and that. So, But Three Lakes Fly Fishing is a, is a neat, neat spot to go take a look at, too. I'll have to do that. So, all right. Uh, I appreciate you being on. Um, you know, great stuff, great content. And uh, you know what? Hopefully we can do this again uh, in, in, the, in the future and have you back on. And uh, we'll continue all this. And hopefully it's a, it's a non-COVID year. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I've, I've trapped my entire life. And I will probably, uh, I'm sure I'll go out with my boots on, actually. <laughs> I'm going to oh. fall off of the boat or something, I'm sure. But I'll Hopefully not in a cabin with no power to your boat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. All right, Mike. Pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks, bud. Yep. Bye.